your hypothalamus is right there at the seat, uh, at, in the control seat, watching energy come in and watching energy go out. And it's very good, actually, at matching that flow of energy that's coming in and going out so that they, they match almost precisely. I should also say that your hypothalamus um, controls through the hypothalamus uh, pituitary thyroid axis. It, it, it controls um, thyroid hormone production, which is so it, it has its foot also on the accelerator. It can also ramp your metabolic rate up or, or take its foot off the gas and let it come down a little bit. So the hypothalamus is not only, um, you know, the accountant watching energy flow in and out, but it also can put its hand, uh, its finger on the scale and, and make you burn a little bit more, make you burn a little bit less if it, if it wants to respond that way. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose. I'm very excited today to have with me Dr. Herman Ponser. Hi, Herman. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for joining me. So uh, we're here to talk about your new book, Burn. Um, you released it recently, and you've done a lot of work with the Hudza community looking at energy expenditure. Um, so I'm really looking forward to diving into the detail there. But perhaps first, can you give us a bit brief um, background on who you are and, and what you do for work? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm an anthropologist, an evolutionary anthropologist. So I'm trained uh, in kind of you know, how, how the human body evolved, um, and I'm really interested these days in how that kind of deep time evolutionary perspective helps us understand how our bodies work today, you know? So, you know, we evolved as hunter-gatherers, for example, what does that mean in terms of how our bodies function and particularly how they function in these sort of strange zoos that we've built ourselves? <laughs> Absolutely. And one question I'm really curious on, did you grow up near where they filmed that, um, the Groundhog Day? Yes, yes. Um, I don't know how you figured that out, but that's exactly right. So um, they that, they were filmed that in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Uh, and well, that's, I don't know if they filmed it all there, but that's where it happens. If you know about Groundhog Day, it's, it's Punxsutawney. Yeah, it. <laughs> and we played Punxsutawney in high school sports. Right. Yeah. So all up there. So if, 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 um, if the Ned character's voice comes out of Ned. my mouth, you'll know why. It's, it's, it comes, it's honest, you know. The Ned Ryerson, that's right. He gets yeah. he gets popped in the nose. Um, <laughs> cool. <laughs> I love that uh, show growing up. Um, so let's dive into it. So um, yeah, the, the book I, I really enjoyed. Um, it was a great read. I love the the anecdotes as well as the um, the really uh, easy way to read the book and great analogies. Um, one of the areas I wanted to dive into first was this idea of the, the metabolic revolution and a fascinating discussion on how humans evolved and how our unique metabolism shapes who we are today, including like almost our social structure, how we share, which is quite mm. unusual. So can you, I suppose, describe, um, and, and the ultimate goal of metabolism, I think you put really nicely, turning calories into babies. So <laughs> can you describe, yeah, that, that concept and, and, yeah, we can explore how humans differ from other primates? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think that's a really important place to start because it kind of grounds us uh, thinking about metabolism in, you know, why your body burns calories at all and what, what it's doing with all the energy that it burns every day. And of course, your body's burning tons of calories on things that you never pay attention to or notice, immune function, reproductive function, all that stuff. And all of it, and including, you know, your, your physical activity that you're aware of, all of that is kind of directed toward survival and reproduction, you know, from an evolutionary sense, that's what it's all about, you know. Uh, and we can expect then that if we look across species, that species ought to be doing the best they can uh, to take as much energy as they can out of the environment and using that energy to, you know, to survive and, and it's particularly to reproduce. And so when we see, you know, if you ask, why does a species burn as many calories as it does, you know, that means it's, it's because, well, that, that's how many calories it can expect to get out of its environment. And it should use every one of those calories it can, you know, towards survival and reproduction. So then when we take that kind of perspective and we apply it to ourselves, we see something really interesting, which is, you know, humans are part of the ape family tree, right? We're, we're all, we're primates, but within the primates, we're part of the ape group. 
And um, when I started this work a few, about 10 years ago, we hadn't didn't have any measurements of energy expenditure, uh, daily energy expenditures in the other apes. But I wanted to compare humans to chimps and bonobos and gorillas and, and orangutans, the, the other great apes, and just ask the very simple question, how does energy expenditure in humans compare to, to the other our other related species? And what you find out, uh, this is really fun work that we did across zoos and sanctuaries all over the, mostly in the US, but actually all over the globe. Um, humans are burning about 20% more calories every day, uh, 20% more energy every day than chimpanzees and bonobos. Um, even more than gorillas and even more than orangutans. And so we've basically accelerated our metabolic rate where our cells are doing more work. Uh, and this is after you correct for things like body size and correct for things like activity levels. So it's, it's just really so this fundamental thing about how our bodies are, are taking in energy and burning it off. And um, it's, you know, it's basically it's, it's pointing to this big shift, this enormous metabolic shift. I call it the metabolic revolution um, in how, our bodies work compared to the other apes. And, you know, well, first of all, you can ask, what do we use those calories for? And like any species, we're using them for reproduction. So humans have bigger babies more often, right, than other chimp other apes do. Uh, we also have these really big, expensive brains. You know, your brain runs a 5K every day in your head, right? It's 300 wow. calories a day for your brain. Um, we live a long time, and that requires that, you know, you, you maintain your body and repair and that kind of, that, there's costs to that. We're more physically active. So, all of these things that we do that, that make us humans are um, really metabolically costly. Uh, but, you know, they, they pay off in, in more babies more often. Um, then, you know, the, the next question, if you're an evolutionary biologist is, well, how come the other apes don't do this? Mm. If it's so great, you know, if, if it's so wonderful to have all these calories at your disposal, why not? Why not? Why doesn't everybody do it? And there's where you get to this really fascinating kind of insight into the human strategy, which is, by changing the way that we get our food, we've made a lot more energy available. So uh, humans are hunting and gathering. Um, we're hunting and gathering species. The genus Homo, we're, so we're Homo sapiens, right? But the genus Homo, which is two and a half million years old, uh, is a, hunt, a hunting and gathering genus. And no other mammal does this, right? No other mammal has half of its group goes out and gets one kind of food mm -hmm. all day. Mm -hmm. The other half gets the other kind of food all day. And at the end of the day, you share. I mean, that's, it's, that's incredible, actually, that we kind of perform this choreographed way of getting our food. Um, and it allows some people to go after high energy, high quality foods like, you know, hunt for game, you know, which is risky because you might come home empty handed. It's hard to, it's hard to hunt. Yeah. Um, others go off after plant foods, which are a little bit less energy dense, but are, are short, are, they're a sure thing, you know, so you're not going to starve. And you have that hunting and gathering, and it's it's the and that makes it so powerful, that makes more energy available for us. That's my argument anyway, and that's that just sets the stage for us being able to ramp up this metabolic rate and become human. So, um, yeah, I really think that's kind of a fun way to 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 ground our discussions of metabolism because I think it's such an important perspective to have. Yeah, yeah, I never thought about the fact that we're the only species that, that shares our food, and the other point. You, you spoke about which I found fascinating is um, our metabolism also shapes our lifespan and mm -hmm. we do have an unusually long lifespan compared to other other species can you describe that oh yeah yeah so uh, th there's a, a bit of debate here actually in the in the, the field but um, I, nobody would argue that uh, if you look just broadly across species the species that burn their energy the fastest, tend to grow, reproduce, and die the fastest, right? So the, the, your metabolism, because um, again, what is your metabolism? It's all your cells cooking away, doing all the work they do. And if you do that work faster, then you kind of, you get through a lifespan faster, <laughs> yeah? Uh, and humans are part of the primate group, like I said, and, and humans and apes. I just talked about how humans have an accelerated metabolic rate compared to the other apes, but that's, everything's relative, right? So mm. compared to the other apes, we're fast. But if you look at apes and other primates generally as a big group, all of us are actually quite slow in our metabolisms compared to other mammals, for example. So, you know, I've got a dog. Our family's got a dog. She's 15 years old. Uh, and that's a pretty good run for a dog. Yeah. Right? And, and we hope she lives forever. But, of course, we know she can't. And we know that it's likely that, you know, she won't make it to 20. That would be surprising if she did, right? Dogs, that, that, that would be a surprise for a dog. But we're not surprised when humans live to 70, 80, 90, or 100, right? We have these long protracted lifespans, and, and it's because the dog 
is living its life by the normal metabolic rules of pretty fast metabolism. They grow fast, mature fast, etc., and die young, sadly. Humans, we're a much slower, more protracted uh, primate-like metabolism in life history. Mm, it's fascinating. Um, and the other area of interest is the fact that the primates, other primates have a, a slower metabolism, yet they're probably, they are leaner than us. Um, and even mm. in captivity as well, they still remain resistant to some of the, the you know, the disease of modernity. Yeah. Find that? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, so I, I think that's another important thing to think about, right? Um, when we think about metabolism in this kind of grounded evolutionary way, then, you know, it's sort of easier to decouple in your mind this idea that, you know, how many calories you burn has to be directly tied to how much fat you carry, for example. Mm. Evolution can can decouple those things and pull them apart. So uh, humans have this ramped up metabolism, but we also are the fattest apes, you know, on the planet. So, you know, we carry easily two or three times more fat for a given body size um, than other apes do. Uh, chimpanzees in the zoo have like 10% body fat. It's like Olympic athlete levels, even though they're yeah. just kind of puttering around their enclosures. Yeah. Yeah. And even um, in the wild, um, other primates are, are relatively inactive compared to humans. Well, yeah. So, it, so hunting and gathering is, yeah, it's, it's the hardest thing to do. It's kind of the hardest way to make a living that any, any primate does. Um, and so, yeah, we're more physically active. And so even though we're more physically active, and we burn more calories. We're still the fattest ape by far. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it sort of makes you. It, it it really does kind of recalibrate how you think about these, how these all systems all work together. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, the the main, uh, I suppose, thrust of your book was your work on the Hadza community, which is fascinating. As I said, um, the anecdotes you, you weave through and pepper through the the book is is really great. Um, so, yeah, perhaps can you set the stage of yeah, why you went there and what you did. And, and uh, I'd love to touch upon the actual hearts of people later on. Yeah, sure, sure. So, well, you know, again, as an anthropologist, you know, human evolution, um, I'm interested in how our past shapes our present. Um, and the past for us, for everybody on the planet, is, is hunting and gathering. You know, humans and our ancestors have been hunting and gathering for two and a half million years, um, even before Homo sapiens shows up. You know, our earlier ancestors are hunting and gathering. And so if you want to understand the lifestyle that kind of shapes our bodies or what the sort of ecological, normal ecological context is for humans is a hunting and gathering lifestyle. And there's only a handful of groups left that do it. Um, and so uh, the Hadza who live in Northern Tanzania, they're, they're one of these groups that allow us to ask the question, how does the body function if you grow up in a hunting and gathering, you know, live in a hunting and gathering community? And so, uh, so with some colleagues of mine, we went um, in 2009 and 10 for the first trips. We've been back since, of course, but um, and measured total energy expenditures with the Hadza uh, using this isotope tracking technique called doubly labeled water. Uh, nobody had ever measured energy expenditures before in a hunting and gathering group. And so we wanted, you know, we got the chance to be the first. And we were so sure, because you can imagine that they're really physically active, um, you know, hunting and gathering takes a lot of work. Uh, mm. we expected them to have really high daily energy expenditures to burn lots more calories every day than men and women in the U S and Europe. Uh, but in fact, you know, the surprise surprise is they were indistinguishable from us. They had the same energy wow. expenditures, even though they're much more active. That's amazing. So you describe the, the two contrasting models well in your book. It's like the um, was it the armchair engineer model that sort of it's additive? Like if you go yeah. and 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 I think society really reinforces this with um, obviously food labeling, but our Fitbits and every you know we're yeah. we're tracking everything we do these days, and it's sort of like adding it all up. You you walk to the shop and you you rode your bike and you did a workout, and it's seven hundred calories here, blah blah blah. Um, so that's the armchair model, but your obviously results contradicted that. So yeah, can you explain the two? the two models in your, your sort of model you've created, the um, energy constraint model? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think you, you've described the additive model really nicely. It's the one that probably all your listeners just have in mind when they think about how expenditures work. Like you say, you just sort of add up all the things you do every day. And, you know, it's sort of like getting your, your bill at the end of, the, of a grocery shop, right? You know, this is how, much, how many calories you've burned. Everything just adds up. Um, what we're finding 
And what we what sort of our our first clue was that the Hadza results, but we've done this with other populations. We've done, we've looked at other species. We see this again and again. Is that uh, instead uh, the total number of calories that a person or really any organism burns uh, seems to be pretty constrained. That evolution, you know, evolution has has resulted in these kind of mechanisms in, internal to us. You don't really notice them going on, but but that work kind of underneath the hood to keep uh, total calories burned in a pretty narrow range. So you might see small changes with activity or lifestyle, but but really, you know, nothing nothing much. Um, and so what that means is that your body must be doing something interesting uh, to adapt to 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 compensate for these this bigger activity level because you know exercise doesn't become free all of a sudden, right? Yeah. And we've actually measured this with the Hadza. They when we measure how many calories they take to walk a kilometer, it's the same as as Westerners as well. So there's no there's no magic there. There's no like muscle efficiency magic there. Right. Instead, they must be taking energy out of other tasks to make room for this physical activity. Incredible. So, yeah, the, the, the fascinating piece around like obesity, obviously like people assumed, um, probably rightly so, it sounds almost counterintuitive that um, you can't really sort of um, manage your weight and body composition by simply just um, moving more and adding extra exercise in. Um what was the sort of response? Like, were people shocked, and um, and maybe did they misconstrue it as well? That means exercise is useless, and uh, you know it's all futile. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, the pushback was really intense, and I have to say, coming at this from uh, the world of anthropology, you know, maybe I should have been shouldn't have been surprised. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of vehement reaction to it. On the one hand, I was totally shocked by it because. I, it was a kind of an argument and I hadn't realized how tribal the diet versus exercise, you know, yeah. debates had, had gotten, had been. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, in anthropology, people can have, you know, red faced screaming matches about bumps on a skull, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, maybe it's just the human propensity to, to want to argue. I shouldn't have been surprised, but yeah. But yeah, people didn't like it. You know, people didn't like it. They, they, uh, so, well, some people thought, yeah, this fits with what I'm seeing too. And this makes sense to me. And, um, you know, if it's because of course the implication, right, is that if you can't really push the energy expenditure much with lifestyle, that when it comes to obesity, which is fundamentally about how many calories are coming in and how many calories are being burned off. Well, if you can't change the calories that are being burned off very easily, well, then things like obesity, the focus has to be on the calories that are coming in, which is your diet, right? So by publishing this Hadza work and suggesting that maybe the energy expenditure was a bit constrained, now I didn't realize it, but I'd stepped into the middle as sort of the firing, you know, the crossfire mm -hmm. of this debate. Um, but the people who I think, you know, were looking at it from the diet perspective, and I should say this too, another thing was that people who had actually spent their careers spent measuring calories, um, all said, oh, yeah, well, that, that makes sense to us, you know? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and the ones who had, who had spent their careers uh, focusing on exercise, and, and particularly exercise as a way to lose weight, um, really pushed back, I mean, as you might expect. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, yeah, it's fascinating, obviously, that the, the body's behind the scenes just balancing the, the calorie budget um, without much – we don't have any control, essentially. Like, um, So you, you spoke about this really well in your book about the the hypothalamus being this sort of metabolic manager. Um, and we, we touched upon this in the podcast with Stefan Guina and his great book, The Hungry Brain, but I wouldn't mind just going back over it briefly again. Can you describe uh, what's happening in the, the hypothalamus to sort of keep everything in check in terms of our energy constraint? Yeah, sure. Well, it's um, uh, uh, Stephen would do a better job than I'm going to do, but let, let's give it a whack. Yeah, <laughs> uh, your brain, of course, has all sorts of um, systems that can help sense what energy is coming in, and so just for, you know, from the flavor of the food that you're eating to the changes that it will have in your blood glucose levels to how it will change, how much your stomach is stretched to um, you know all, all of these all of these signals that happen when you eat um, are all being uh, integrated by the hypothalamus, which is this little chunk of, of brain in the center of your, of your brain. Um, 
it's paying attention to all of these intake signals. And it's also paying attention to all of these expenditure signals. So things like, uh, you know, leptin and, and, and other measures of, of energy out. And so your hypothalamus is right there at the seat, uh, at, in the control seat, watching energy come in and watching energy go out. And it's very good, actually, at matching that flow of energy that's coming in and going out so that they, they match almost precisely. I should also say that your hypothalamus um, controls through the hypothalamus uh, pituitary thyroid axis. It, it, it controls um, thyroid hormone production, which is so it, it has its foot also on the accelerator. It can also ramp your metabolic rate up or, or take its foot off the gas and let it come down a little bit. So the hypothalamus is not only um, you know the accountant watching energy flow in and out, but it also can put its hand uh, its finger on the scale and, and, and make you burn a little bit more, make you burn a little bit less if it, if it wants to respond that way. Um, and so, like I said, normally it does a really good job. So, you know, in the U S the, um, the average Americans gaining about two pounds a year or something like that. Well, you know, that, that gets you to an obesity crisis pretty quickly. Cause if you're a, a normal weight, 20 year old, well, by the time you're 40, you know, you, you weigh 40 pounds too much. And so now you're, mm-hmm. now you've got obesity and overweight issues. So it's just that little bit of a creep. Well, two per two pounds a year. If you think about how many calories of energy that are coming in and going out, you're still matching energy expenditures to your intakes to within like a fraction of a percent every day. It's incredibly, incredibly good. Um, but, but it seems that the modern foods that we surround ourselves with, that we, especially the engineered ultra-processed ones, um, push the hypothalamus a little bit in a, in a kind of regular way, put, for a lot of us anyhow, push us to over-consume a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and we err on the side of over-consuming. And it's, we think it's because of these, again, it, it comes down to the systems of energy coming in and energy going out. The hypothalamus isn't doing as good of a job with that when it comes to ultra-processed foods and really delicious foods. Mm, mm, it's amazing. I'm just on that metabolic manager. So the accountant sort of is sort of trying to balance the books, but you said it also affects both our appetite and energy expenditure. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to sort of underscore, I think there's a, there is a perception that overweight people um, and sometimes some healthcare practitioners focus on the sluggish metabolism and the, mm. the low metabolic rate. Yeah. Um, so um, two parts. Yeah, my understanding now is that seldom um is the the metabolism lower and um and doesn't yeah predict weight um gain or um or make you more vulnerable to put on weight is that correct yeah i mean as far as i can tell that when people say that they have a slow metabolism or a fast metabolism what they really seem to mean by that is i don't have any trouble keeping weight off yeah because i've got a fast metabolism or Gosh, it seems I'm always struggling and, and, you know, I try to restrict what I eat, but I'm always either hungry or I'm, I'm always gaining weight. And they blame that on their slow metabolism, right? But it actually doesn't track with their actual calories burned. What they're really reporting on is, um, again, that hypothalamus manager, which is either making them feel full or hungry, depending on the calories coming in and going out, right? So, um, and th- this tracks with where, you know, the, the the genes that have been implicated in obesity, there's hundreds of them now. Mm. And we have you know, gene variants that if you have this variant versus that one, you're more or less likely to, to become um, overweight. Uh, the large majority of those genes, over 90% of them, I believe, are most active in the brain, right? Because they're all involved in these systems, and these signaling systems about how full you feel and how hungry you feel. Um, if you actually measure calories, so you get away from what people's perceptions of their meta- metabolic rates and you actually measure metabolic rates, uh, and this has been known since the 1980s when we first started having really good measurements of, of daily energy expenditures in normal life, um, people who have overweight or obesity don't have slow metabolisms actually on average. I mean, now people vary that just like in height, people are, are short or tall or, you know, fat, whatever. So people are, there are, there is variation in energy expenditure day to day. But that variation doesn't predict either who is already overweight or slim or who is likely to become overweight or slim. Yeah. And finally on this <clears throat> pardon me, on this area is this idea of the the set point and um 
when people lose weight, mm. that we, we know um, that weight gain is very common. Um, a majority of people who successfully lose weight tend to put it back on over time so that the body's got that set point and it's always um, there's cues and signals to, to sort of bounce back. And my understanding is that the, the appetite, the calories in lever gets pulled much harder than the, the let's adjust our metabolic rate um, so that when people are in a, a large uh, calorie deficit, they've got, you know, wild hunger and, um, you know, satiety is affected. Um, so can, yeah, and can you, I suppose, you, you want anything to add to that? And then I want to discuss like strategies to, to try and buy a hack or overcome that. How do we, um, how do we yeah. deal with that? Yeah, no, I, I think you hit it exactly right. I don't think I could say it any better. Um, but that is the, that is the trick then, isn't it? Is how do you find a diet that works? And a lot of diets can work, but how do you find the diet that works for you that doesn't make you feel miserable and, and kind of push you back to the fridge? Yeah. A couple other interventions um, that have, yeah, I don't know if science knows the answers yet. Um, first, these bariatric surgery seems to mm. allow uh, the set point to come, come down and they seem to be able to hold that weight by and large. Do you know how that's working? <laughs> I don't think anybody knows exactly how it's working, but we've actually, we've ruled out the most obvious explanation, right? So um, I, when that, when those surgeries first started being used, um, as I understand it, the, the thought was, well, if I reduce how much intestine you've got or how much stomach you've got, then you can't hold as much food and you can't absorb as much food. And therefore, this sort of, you know, the plumbing basically is what's going <laughs> to take care of, of this weight uh, issue. And, and, it, and it worked like a charm. I mean, um, I'm not necessarily recommending surgeries for, or anything like that, but if you look at the data, it's one of the most um, durable, long-term major significant ways to lose weight are these surgeries that people have really uh, strong results compared to other inter interventions. Um, and then it turns out that it's not the plumbing after all that was actually changing is it's changing your brain's perception of either how big the body is supposed to be. So somehow it's changing your perception of how much fat you're meant to carry and how much weight you're meant to carry. I'm not so sure. I think what's happening is it's changing your your brain's perception of how much energy is supposed to be flowing through and when to, when enough's enough. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and we know that that it's it's that kind of brain regulation thing because, for example, women who have bariatric surgery um, are able to get pregnant, and their metabolic rates go way up. Right. Just like they yeah. would if they were a larger yeah. person. Right. So yeah. they're able to gain weight. They're able to to met have metabolic rate go up in response to pregnancy. And then it comes back down to the bariatric surgery weight after the pregnancy, right? So um, it isn't, if it was just mechanical, of course, a woman who was pregnant would be in a lot of trouble, right? Trying to get mm -hmm. enough calories in to support the pregnancy. Yeah. Um, but instead that, that doesn't happen. So um, there, there's other evidence too, but I always thought that was really telling that that's a, it's, it's not, it's not the plumbing. Yeah. It's fascinating. Um, and the other one, um, that's just been published recently as a trial on this drug semiglutide, which I think is oh, a, a yeah. weekly injection, yeah. um, which is a GLP-1 agonist, which again, as I understand, um, was originally, um, and we'll get to this in a moment, ironically, it stimulates insulin secretion. So that's yeah. the, that's violated the carbohydrate insulin model um, laws, but we'll, we'll come back to that. But it also seems to affect uh, calories in. Can you just describe the anything you want to add about the physiology, but the, the results from this trial and um, and, and particularly long term um, results? Yeah, well, so it's again one of these really uh, promising uh, interventions, right? I mean, it, it's weight loss at a scale that nobody's really seen before with these kind of you know drug interventions seems to be really durable. Um, it seems just about everybody benefits, and some people benefit a lot. You get the kind of results that that are in the in, a, in the ballpark of bariatric surgery, which used to be untouchable. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on the biochemistry so or the neuro, neuroendocrinology, <laughs> so I won't talk, I won't try to get too far out of my depth here, but I do think it's interesting that the mechanism seems to be in the brain and, you know, affecting uh, the signaling of hunger and satiety, uh, which, as you say, it, it is completely contravenes the idea that it's insulin signaling. It's all about carbs because 
if anything, it, it, it increases insulin secretion, mm. at least mm. at the at, at baseline. So, um, so I think it's pointing toward both a promising set of interventions, right? Because this is just, you know, well, that's not the only drug that is in this, in this area, but it's pointing to a whole family of drugs maybe that could work really well like this way. And I think it's also telling us about the physiology of, of, of overweight and obesity, because um, the way you fix it isn't by fixing your insulin or fixing your fat cells. You fix it by adjusting your brain. Yeah, perfect. All right, so that's a, a great segue to, to move into another area that's very tribal is the um, diet. So yeah. uh, throughout your book, you, you describe, um, you know, with great detail and um, stories about firstly let's um i suppose debunk a few myths the first one about the, the paleo diet um different sort of advocates sort of double down and they you know it's you know they're vegan or they're omnivore carnivore often it's the extremes yeah, um yeah. but I, I think you put it really well that we're opportunistic omnivores and i often wonder if if that you you took the hudza tribe to to where you are um that would seek out all the the you know the, the delicious and calorie rich foods using yeah. eats and apps and things. Um, essentially, we could we eat whatever we can get our hands on. Is that true? I think that's right. I mean, it, well, you don't even have to wonder because there's plenty of uh, you know really sad stories of, of hunter gatherer populations getting moved to villages or getting moved to reservations, and you know fed uh, it, their food environment changes. All of a sudden, they've got all the industrialized foods that we've got. Um, and people get really overweight and really sick really fast. I mean, there's a, I don't know if you're aware of all the work that's been done um, with Australian Aboriginal groups in this context, yeah, yeah. but there's, you know, it, it's all, a lot of those changes happened um, kind of recently enough uh, that there's good data, good kind of modern data on it. Uh, and, you know, people uh, like O'Day have, have shown exactly how that, how that plays out in really tragic ways. So, yeah, I think if you move the Hadza here or move them to a, a village, then they'd have the same sad fate. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, back to the what is there's thought to be a view. There's a you know specific and optimal paleo diet, yeah. but in your book you you show that um, depending on the region, other than a few in, interesting cultural um, taboos about food, <laughs> um, they seem to obviously because yeah, calories were were difficult to get. We essentially eat whatever macronutrient and, and food group we can get our hands on. Yeah, I mean, people in really cold climates where no plants grow, well, they don't need a lot of they don't need a lot of plants. You know, that's not a, <laughs> no surprise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people who live where it's warm and there's plants, you know, to eat, they eat a, a mix of plants and meat. Uh, and so, you know, there, and the other thing is, there's as much diversity when we look across, you know, records of hunter gatherers. Of course, a lot of like, like I said, most of them aren't hunting and gathering anymore, but there's, we have good ethnographic records for, you know, 200 and more of these populations and, uh, they're burning all kind. they're eating whatever's around. And, um, you know, it's usually a mix of plants and animals and it's as diverse of a mix as, you know, as we'd see around the world today, if we looked at, you know, at people in industrialized, uh, contexts. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, the, Keto keto uh, tribe use the the is it the Inuit or the Greenland Eskimos as an example yeah, of sure. keto, but they've actually got some sort of genetic adaptation to make almost almost resistant to ketosis. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. The uh, Greenland and other uh, Arctic uh, groups have had this selective sweep. So they, you know, that when your body is trying to make a ketone as it burns a use it, you know, when when a, you when you burn a fat molecule essentially there's a several steps along the way. And one of those steps will kick out a ketone molecule. And that means you're in ketosis. If you're doing a lot of, if you're kicking out a lot of ketone molecules, you're in ketosis. Um, and I don't remember exactly which enzyme it is, but one of those enzymes is basically non-functional in, um, in the Greenland and other Arctic groups. And so they can't go into ketosis, certainly not as, you know, anywhere near like what we can. Uh, and so, you know, here's your chance to be fully keto uh, <laughs> and, and natural selection said, no, nah, I'd, I'd rather not. Yeah, yeah. And one other um, bit of data you showed was or discussed was the fact that uh, humans have probably been eating grains for much longer than we once suspected. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even Neanderthals, which are like, 
you know, the keto bro uh, hominin <laughs> fossil of the, uh, you know, it's a, uh, and, and, you know, and they were eating, they were, they were hunting rhinoceroses and, you know, and, and mammoths and all, they were eating plenty of meat for sure. Um, but also, and I love this, if you look in the, in the calculus that's kind of stuck in their teeth and they you know, go in there with a dental thing and have a look, uh, you'll see all kinds of uh, starch rich plant remains there. So, yeah, you yeah. know, cereals and starchy tubers and other stuff. Um, so absolutely, they're getting their starches too. Um, yeah, yeah. They, were, they weren't keto. Um, and speaking of carbohydrates, uh, I read in Stephen Guinea's book, and, and you described it in some detail in your book, I, I'm desperate to know, how much honey can a Hadza man eat in one sitting? <laughs> I mean, how much can you put in front of him? <laughs> uh, yeah, the, he'll. Uh, I've seen them, you know, drink honey like a glass, like like you know, like you might drink a glass of milk, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's really impressive. Um, first of all, the hives that they exploit are these really massive hives that would just have tons of honey in them and they're all over yeah. the landscape and they seem to kind of regenerate, you know, pretty quickly, uh, after they get, after the Hadza or other animals take a whack at them. Um, so it's kind of this never ending supply of, of sugar and water. I mean, that's all it is. It's just sugar and water. Yeah. And, you know, on a day-to-day basis, anywhere from 10 to 20% of their calories in a given day come from honey. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an amazing amount of honey, yeah. <laughs> so that leads me on to my next point, um, which is where I think the real diet wars are uh, entrenched yeah. is the the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity. And I've, we've covered this a, a few times in the podcast. Um, but what I wanted to touch upon, you describe, and I think he may have reviewed your book, Kevin Hall, Dr. Kevin Hall, um yeah you, you speak um you speak nicely about how you were kindly reminded about gary tobes and, and his views <laughs> and how did you know how'd you forget about that um yeah. so can you describe and and gary has actually commissioned some studies to to test these hypotheses yeah. along with kevin hall can you describe some of the, the the research that's gone on there yeah so you know gary tobes is uh i don't know if He's certainly the, the the leading evangelist for the carbohydrate insulin model and this idea that, you know, uh, as you eat carbohydrate rich foods, your insulin spikes, the insulin pulls all the blood sugar out of your blood, as well as the fatty acids, packs it into your fat cells. And then your, your blood becomes, you know, actually low on energy and, and your brain freaks out and you get hungry and your metabolism. Anyway, and that, so that's, that's the model. That's the idea. Uh, and it's a nice idea actually. And it's really mm-hmm. interesting. And, you know, I think 10 years ago, there was a lot of energy and enthusiasm about testing it. Uh, a lot of people thought, wow, this, this might really work. And so Gary Taubes, along with Kevin Hall and some other people actually, you know, designed some studies to test it. And you do that by, um, in a very controlled way so that you eliminate, you know, people cheating or, or lying about what they're eating or anything like that. In a very controlled way, you feed people either a high-fat diet with hardly any carbs or a high-carb diet with hardly any fats, right? Because your body gets its energy either from carbs or fats, and so you kind of have to have one or the other. Um, and then you look at what happens. You look at what happens to insulin, and you look at what happens to body weight. You look at what happens to metabolic rate. And the carbohydrate insulin model makes very clear predictions about all those things. Mm. And none of those predictions bear out, you know? Uh, so I think... Um, you know, you can always go back and if you're, if you're convinced and you're certain that the carbohydrate insulin model is right, you know, then you'll always be able to go and find that little data nugget there or that study over there and say, but CCC, it's, I, it's, it's not dead yet. Right. But of course that's not really how it works because it only takes, you know, a handful of good studies to show it doesn't work like you said it does. And then we have to move on. Yeah. And also recent, more recently, Kevin Hall's switched, or he's, he's, more focused on looking at um composition of food from like processing perspective yeah, and yeah. the the ultra processed study and also i think there was the the low low fat plant-based diet versus the keto diet mm-hmm. more looking at um you know if we're we're hopefully going to moving to a point where we can agree it's all about trying to comfortably reduce their caloric intake yeah. um can you just describe some of the results from those couple of studies? That oh, yeah, done? yeah. So uh, this is a great one by Kevin Hall uh, looking at 
you know, and again, it's another one of these, what we call an inpatient study. So people are, you know, they live in a metabolic ward, basically in a hospital setting for a few weeks. And we know exactly what they eat because they only can eat what we feed them. What I say we, what they feed them. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, similar to the keto versus uh, carb diet thing, well, it, Kevin's ultra processed study was you feed somebody either an ultra processed diet. So, you know, boxed sugary cereals and um, ready to eat packaged dinners and that kind of stuff. Or you feed them the same exact calories and the same exact carbs and proteins and fats and all that stuff. You match it exactly for macronutrients, but it's whole foods. It's unprocessed foods, you know, um, uh, meats and vegetables and, and that kind of thing. And uh, the results are really stunning because you get two weeks in each of those, for each of those diets. And when you are eating the ultra processed foods, people over consume about 500 kilocalories a day. So they're gaining like a pound a week, um, kilo, a kilogram every two weeks, uh, just by changing the kinds of foods they're eating. They haven't changed the carbohydrate percentages. They haven't changed the protein percentage. They haven't changed the fat percentage. Just the fact that this you know, this diet is engineered in a lab mm -hmm. to be overconsumed. This diet is much more natural and, and not, doesn't have all those, you know, little molecules to make your brain go crazy. <laughs> um, and, and, and the whole food diet wins because you don't overconsume. Mm, it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, now I want to move on to exercise because obviously, as as is mentioned that uh, your body sort of caps how much energy you, you burn um, and therefore from a weight loss perspective exercise may not be that effective um, but there is research suggesting that exercise can help with uh, you maintaining that weight loss is that yeah. correct yeah 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 I mean you know I, I think exercise has such pervasive effects everywhere I mean hundreds of molecules get released when your body's exercising uh, these are all kind of potentially signaling molecules. And they seem to have big effects on how the rest of your body works. Um, and for reasons that aren't entirely clear, some of those signals uh, help us keep weight off once we've lost it. And so, you know, I, I think the way to think about exercise isn't so much, well, if I, you know, if, if I exercise an extra 300 kilocalories a day, I, I can earn my donuts, you know, it isn't about the calorie expenditure that way. It's about the way it kind of reshuffles the way that your body spends its calories and kind of regulates energy in and energy out. So it plays a really important regulatory role, it seems, in people who have managed to lose weight. Interesting. And uh, you've spent time tracking the amount of activity that HUDs are doing. Can you describe, uh, well, importantly, and, and, and um, I think it was your supervisor, was it um, Dan Lieberman, he's also yeah. looked at, they also rest pretty well as well, don't they? Like, um, so can you can compare and contrast their activity and rest levels? Yeah, yeah. So um, if you let's start with how much they rest, right? So first of all, let's yeah. paint a little bit of a picture here. Uh, the Hadza they live in in small camps of sort of five to six families, or you know, uh, and they're living in these grass huts uh, in northern Tanzania, which is a sort of semi-arid savanna, open, you know, pretty open country with acacia trees and that kind of thing. Uh, and they don't have any domesticated crops or domesticated animals or machines or vehicles or guns uh, or electricity or water or you know, running water or anything like that. Um, and instead, you know, they wake up every morning and they have to get food, right? Because they don't have any way to store food day to day. Not much. Anyhow. They might have some leftovers from the previous day, but they don't have the store of food built up, right? And so you wake up every day and, and every day is kind of the same. It's time to go get food. And women go off and gather plant foods. They dig up wild tubers or they gather berries. Um, men go off and hunt game. Uh, men are also often, they'll, they'll spend some of their days uh, getting honey, which we talked about already. Uh, and so it's a really physically active lifestyle. And if you measure um, heart rate or you measure accelerometry, di different ways of objectively measuring physical activity, uh, they get about five times more activity every day wow. than a typical U.S. man or woman does. So it's a really physically active lifestyle. Um, you know, they're getting as much activity in a day as, as typical Americans get in a, in a week. 
Um, now, interestingly, that's kind of interwoven with periods that when, you know, when they're resting, they really do rest. And so if you look at how much they're just sitting around um, and not moving, um, you, you find that you know, the, the total time spent sitting or, or completely inactive um, is around the same as it is in, well, in Australia, for that matter, or in the US mm-hmm. or in Europe, mm-hmm. in industrialized societies. And so um, they're, they're sitting as much as you and I are. But that, even, that seems to be different, too, because when they're sitting, they're often squatting or they're kneeling or doing something where you're keeping some core muscles on or some leg muscles yeah. on to kind of help keep you structured. Um, here I am in a comfy chair in my home and I'm just kind of, you know, <laughs> I'm just drooped over the chair like a wet rag, you know, that, that's not the same thing. Um, and so, we, yeah, so both their activity and their inactivity are different than we are here in the States. Yeah, really fascinating. And so they're, they're not burning any more calories per pound of body weight, um, but they're obviously doing a lot of activity. So obviously then if we're doing the, the calculation, some organs or systems are being quote-unquote deprived of energy, um, but that actually could be advantageous and that's where the, maybe the health benefits of exercise um, we, we see are from not so much maybe, well, obviously there's, that the you know the the physical conditioning, but um, uh, yeah, is there uh, almost a pathology, or if you want to call it that, of having too much available energy for other other systems? Yeah, yeah, that's one of the really exciting things that we're working on now. Um, ah. The uh, it it does seem that exercise is doing just what you said. It it's it's suppressing activity in other act in other systems, right? Um, and so this helps actually make sense of this kind of constellation of responses that we get with exercise that people have recognized for a long time. And I think this kind of metabolic approach, this, this energy compens- uh, constraint energy framework kind of makes sense of it. And so we know that if you um, exercise regularly, you'll, you decrease inflammation, you know, background baseline inflammation. And so people who have, have high chronic inflammation, if they exercise more, they, those inflammation levels will come down. Or if we compare people who are really active and people who aren't, people, people who are active are going to have less chronic inflammation. Well, inflammation is just your immune system sort of on high all the time, right? It's sort of like, you know, the, the, it's, it's overactive basically. And so you, you reduce its activity a bit by, and get rid of the inflammation. Um, stress, right? Cortisol and, and adrenaline or epinephrine, that those responses to stressful stimuli are blunted in people who exercise more. So, you know, if you, um, you know, throughout the course of your day, you're, you're seeing new people or running into new stress, stressful situations and your heart rate goes up a bit and your cortisol level goes up a bit, that's normal. Um, but if I were to track somebody who exercises all the time and somebody who doesn't, the person who exercises all the time is going to have less of a bump. Their cortisol levels will go up less, high, less and, and their adrenaline levels go up less and they'll come back down faster than the person who's really sedentary. Um, reproductive hormone levels seem to be in a healthier place, uh, in, you know, in in people who are really physically active. So, you know, a Hadza man, for example, has uh, testosterone levels about half that as we'd see Mm. in a man Mm. in the U S and the Hadza men are plenty tough and, you know, no family sizes are big. People are not having any any fertility issues. Yeah. But um, but probably they're in a kind of a more normal, healthier range, actually. And, and we know that exercise is really protective, uh, really good at, at keeping uh, you protected from reproductive cancers, right? So there's yeah. kind of a connection there. So we're, we're, we're still, it's early days making all these connections and, and really, really sealing the case on these things. But it seems really likely that, that this is one of the reasons exercises are good for you is it, it downregulates all these other activities that, that don't need to be as high as they are in a lot of us. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. Uh, it certainly, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me and don't disagree with you. I'm curious on um, the testosterone in men. Um, you're probably very familiar with uh, Robert Sapolsky's work. Mm. And in his book, Behave, he talks about testosterone as this hormone that it's not so much aggression, but it's trying to maintain, particularly in males, main, it helps you maintain your status. Like, And he gives a good example if you injected, is it the Buddhist monks with testosterone that go around rampantly doing, you know, random acts of kindness. 
I wonder, is um, the Hudza quite a sort of a flat sort of structure? There's not so much hierarchy. Would, um, would testosterone yeah. respond to that? That's interesting. Yeah, I, 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 I wonder how that all interacts and it works together. It is a very egalitarian society. So nobody's, you know, in charge of anybody else. There's no chief. There's no police, you know. And yeah, for that yeah. matter, women, women and men are also on an equal footing. Nobody can tell anybody what to do. Um, that said the kind of, you know, the winner effect or loser effect that you see with testosterone, right? If you, if you're on a sport, if, if you're, if you're yeah. on a football team and you win, your testosterone goes up. If you lose, it goes down. And yeah. actually, yeah. even if you're just watching it on television exactly. and your team wins, your testosterone goes up. If the team loses, it goes down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that kind of status threat and status change where testosterone is responding, um, I I suspect you still have that happening in a Hadza camp. I mean, it's it's what, not so yeah. different than you know a bunch of guys hanging out anywhere. You know, I was you come home with the kill. You know, that exactly, feels pretty yeah. good. Yeah, you come yeah. home with the head. That doesn't feel very good. So <laughs> I don't know. Interesting. Um, so yeah, I want to move on finally as we wrap up to turn to sort of more, look more broadly at the Hadza um, community and life, and and I'm curious on. Yeah, you mentioned it's an egalitarian society. Um, yeah, and I suppose and that, that, that question or that um, right back at the start, we you spoke about how humans have evolved to share and that really comes through strongly in their community. Can you describe the, the concept of, of sharing and in the Hudza life? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, there is you are expected to share everything anytime anybody asks. And it's to the point that they don't really have the kind of please and thank you, you know, etiquette that we do. Um, they just say za, which means give, you know. And um, it's, uh, you hear it all the time. If you're in a Hadza camp, one of the first things I noticed actually when I was trying to learn a little bit of Hadza anyway, we, 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 we talk in Swahili when, when we would talk to each other. Um, but it's always fun to pick up a couple of words if you can and this Hadza word that you hear all the time is za, and it's it's people just say, hey, saying give, give. It almost seems rude, right? It almost mm. seems rude to me or to somebody who's used to the sort of please and thank you culture that you get instilled with, you know, in the States and I'm sure in Australia. As a kid, your parents beating it into you, they might have to say please and thank you, you know? Um, but you realize too that, that please and thank you is just, the reason you say please and thank you is because the person might refuse, right? The person is within their rights to refuse. To give you that thing, whereas, but if they're not right, then you then you don't say please and thank you because what's the you know of course the person gives you the thing you know to say please and thank you is kind of almost insulting like well <laughs> I, you know I have to do this you know I'm happy to do it but I, I have to you know um, and so that's how ingrained giving is there that they really I mean they have they they are able to express thanks and they're able to you know they they understand the concept and they will say it when appropriate but the day to day. Is just give, and you always give, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that's hunting and gathering for you. It's it's not hunting, and it's not the gathering that makes it special. It's the and, you know. It's the fact that they share it at the end of the day. It's just yeah, and and, yeah. and that's you know it pervades everything, right? I mean, you go to a barbecue, you go to a birthday party, you go to you know lunch at work, and people are sharing food. It is a normal human thing. It it, it is a the thread through everything is sharing food. Um, it really makes us who we are as a species. Um, and it is a completely foreign concept to every other primate. Yeah, true. And the other one other area that struck me was their resilience, essentially, mm. and their, their carefree attitude. <laughs> can you can you describe that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's amazing. You know, um, I get there and, you know, I roll up into a camp and, I'm immediately, maybe because it's so hot and, you know, even though I've been there a bunch, it still always still feels so kind of new. Um, I'm worried about getting my tent up and getting my water sorted out and what's we're going to do the next day and, you know, on the lookout for snakes and all that kind of stuff. Um, and they're just way more chill about absolutely everything. Um, I, I talk in the book about this one time we had a, a bushfire come through camp mm. Um really scared the heck out of me and, and uh, Dave Reichlin, who was there with me and our field assistant who was there a few days. 
And we were totally freaked out. And, you know, but the Hods are like kind of shrugging it off and they cut some boughs and kind of beat it down. It sort of doesn't get their houses. But then, you know, but then the wind shift and it does get their houses and their little, you know, their, their dry grass huts just go up like fireworks, you know. And I'm like, oh my God, this is a tragedy. And uh, you know, what, what if your house burned down? What if mine burned down? It would be obviously, I mean, as we, too many of us mm. know, it's, it is a tragedy for us. Um, but for them, it's like, well, eh, I'll make another house tomorrow, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's such a, you know, they, look, you know, life and death um, are, are very real. They're, they're not, you know, to them, they, they live with people every day, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's no, they don't have the creature comforts. They don't have the security of knowing that if they get sick, they can just go to the doctor. You know, they, they, they live with this kind of stuff, uh, day to day. The reality is the harsh realities of life. Um, but they've just, they've got such an easygoing attitude about it all. It's, it's really impressive. Uh, and it, it makes me, it makes me jealous for their sort of endless reserve of, of, of cool. You know, <laughs> I wish I could be that chill about everything. Okay. Well, that was going to be my final question is, um, are there any, any sort of principles or uh, takeaways you've, you've received from the, the huds that you now apply to your, to your life mm. back, you know, in the West when you're, you're battling to get your name published in a paper and grants and everything like, <laughs> is there anything transferable that can make your life easier? Yeah. Well, I think it's definitely a, a different perspective and, and to just be chilled out. And it reminds you, you know, you go there, no, the Hadza don't know how famous they are, you know? I mean, <laughs> they've been in every book about human evolution for the last couple of decades and every paleo book. I mean, and they've, they've taught us so much about, about how the body works and how humans, you know, they don't, that doesn't matter to them. They don't care, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I think it's really grounding to realize, to, to know that however good or bad today went, there's, you know, most people on the planet don't care (laughs) 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 that you're just there doing your thing. They're doing their thing. And, you know, Hey man, just don't worry about it too much. Spend some time outside, spend some time with your family, you know, be chill. That's, that's, uh, it's not easy to do it. Uh, but it's a nice it's a nice lesson to try to 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 weave into our own lives. Yeah, perfect. Actually, one last one. Um, I often wonder you've you've gone there and others. Um, you know, with the, all these weird and wonderful technology, almost like godlike mm. you know <laughs> devices, and then you were asking them to like walk around in a circle. Or I think that the, the yeah. strangest one was Jeff Leach that did the the on the site oh, fecal microbiota transplantation and yeah what do they think of us with all these questions and concepts and <laughs> yeah i mean i they know that people who come out and want to do research are just kind of weird and uh you know but there's so there's some real long-term friendships that you develop there um the more they're there and the, and, and it, a real trust that develops there yeah uh, and i think you know if you're asking kind of legitimate questions about how life works, then they get that, you know, they understand yeah. the importance of food and the importance of movement. And they, you don't have to work too hard to, to get that concept across, you know, um, stuff like, like, you know, like Jeff Leach was doing, I think is a lot more questionable actually. Uh, <laughs> yes. and it's a different, a different topic. And I think that they are pretty skeptical of that kind of stuff for okay. obvious reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's, you know, they're like the it's it's like the Amish here uh, in the states. I don't know if you have Amish or Mennonite groups in, in Australia, but it's these folks that you know their ancestors moved to the states in the 1700s, and they kind of have, have been farming like that ever since. And it isn't that they don't know about the outside world, but they don't like it. They they're not, it's not even so much they don't like it, but they don't they prefer to keep their own ways. Mm, you know, mm. and so you can come in with the craziest computers and the weirdest stuff, and I mean they've seen it, they get it, but yeah. Uh, they don't doesn't mean they're going to change the way they live or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm grateful that yeah you've you've had the opportunity and others that and and they're so gracious and generous to yeah. to be observed. Absolutely. Um, it's been yeah absolute thrill. Um, yeah, I could ask you a thousand more questions, but I really want to urge the listeners to to go out and buy your book. It's also on Audible now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, can you give the the book a plug? And what was the um? There's also a a foundation to help support the the Hudza folk. Yeah. Thanks for that. So the book is called Burn. 
and you can get it anywhere you buy books or listen to books. And um, and the if you want to find out more about the Hadza and you know their culture as well as our work there and, and how you can even give back if you want to support them, um, it's the Hadza Fund. So it's H A D Z A F U N D dot org, and uh, we're an organization that of researchers that work with the Hadza, and it's our way of giving back and, and trying to support their their community that's given us so much. Perfect. Well, Hammond, thanks so much for the, the, your time. Um, you, I think, embodied the, the Hudson spirit by sharing. And you know, if you if someone searches up your name on uh, iTunes at the moment, you, you're on about 400 podcasts. So you've certainly <laughs> have done the Hudza and, and shared all your information. So thank you. I'm happy to be on. Uh, great to talk with you anytime. Thank you. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.